We will be continuing this morning in our study of Ephesians 1. Uh, We've been camped out in the exact passage that Harry read just a moment ago, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And um, this is actually our ninth week in the series. So, you know, we're going on, you know, 10 weeks here already. We've been in it for a couple of months. Pretty crazy to think that already. Um, We have been focusing or looking at the spiritual blessings that, that every believer has in Christ, which also represent the works of the Father, the works of the Son and Holy Spirit in our salvation. So far, we've covered election, that was verse 4, adoption, verse 5, blessed in the beloved, or some might say accepted, uh, that was verse 6. We covered redemption, verse 7, the mystery of God's will has been revealed to us through Christ, that's awesome, that's verses 8 to 10. And then we have inheritance, which is what we focused on last week, that's verses 11 through 12. How many of you guys just, you know, have just enjoyed hearing about what Christ has secured for us? so far in just the last, I mean, it, for me, it's been like really transformational. It's kind of giving me a new perspective on life and ministry and relationships and things. And I just, it's been super, super helpful for me just to study the word. And then, uh, and I have no doubt that his word has been impactful to you guys as well. This morning, we're going to look at the last spiritual blessing in the list. If there was a list there, and there kind of is, we would be looking at the last one which is also the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's like the last spiritual blessing that we possess, but it's also the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the one pair of verses where we see the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. And uh, it's going to be, I guess we would call the title, the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says it is in the text. Um, Might be a good idea to pray one more time before we actually dive into the Word of God. Um, to help our focus in these sorts of things. So bow your heads with me. Lord, we give you this time, and we thank you for the time that we've already had together, and just singing to you and praising you, and and that's been really cool. And now we transition into a time of, like, we hear from you in the songs when the songs contain Scripture, but now we get to hear directly from you in a really profound way in amazing way. It's like direct. You're like speaking directly to us because this is your exact word. And so we want to be sure to ask the Holy Spirit, and this is part of his ministry to us too, to to open our hearts and minds to the truth this morning. Um, If he doesn't do his supernatural work in our hearts, in our ears, in our minds, brains, uh, we're probably just going to come in here as a particular type of fill and leave as the same type and not be impacted by the truth or challenged by it or sanctified and changed by it. And so we pray, Lord, for the supernatural unleashing of the Holy Spirit in this setting, that we might be made more like Christ, that we might gather more information, but just not knowledge and information, but transformational truth in knowing who we are and what you've done and secured for us. I mean, this, this whole first part of the first chapter really is the launch point or launch pad for the whole book because at some point, Paul's going to start calling for the Ephesians to obey and to live a certain way. And it's only in light of what you have accomplished for us that we could even begin to obey and do what you've called us to do. And so this is so critical for us, Holy Spirit. Open our hearts and minds to the truth. And may you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, be absolutely blessed and praised and glorified during this time. We love you when we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you guys are over there right now? Go ahead and turn over to Ephesians 1. We're going to be looking at verses 13 and 14, the last two verses of that little section. An interesting thing quickly before we read it together is that the rest of the chapter, 15 to the end, is really Paul's prayer that the Ephesians would understand what he said through verses 3 to 14, that it would become a reality for them, that they would be, take a hold of these blessings and move forward in life and ministry, fellowship and relationship in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. It's like, okay, here's what Christ has done for you. Then he spends the rest of the chapter saying, I pray that you would understand this and that you would receive this, that you would own this. It's really neat. And we'll start getting into that in the coming weeks. But let's go ahead and read together. I'll read it out loud. You can follow along, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it 
And then you see that nice little phrase, to the praise of his glory. So, similar to last week, there are seven things in these two verses that I would like for us all to notice. Um, And you might want to be ready to take some notes. We've actually just taken the verse and broken it up into the points. And I think that's probably the way it should be done if we're going to talk points. But anyways, seven things, so be ready to write them down. And you can just kind of keep, you just listen to me. You don't even have to look at me, but just keep looking at your Bible. And so I want you to notice the first thing with me. Number one, it's in him you also. In him you also. That's how this verse begins or this section begins. In him is obviously another reference to the beloved, right, which is Christ Uh, This is the last time he used this phrase in him. I think four times from verse 6 and on or verse 7 and on, he uses it four times in Ephesians chapter 1. Each use is meant to highlight the exclusiveness of Christ. Uh, And you've probably heard me say that over the last couple of weeks because we keep reading these passages out loud and teaching on them and we keep seeing him say in him and I keep trying to explain what it means. Redemption, inheritance, every other spiritual blessing, everything that he's listed in this beginning of this chapter, chapter 1, it's all in him. It's all in the beloved, the exclusiveness of the beloved, the exclusiveness of Christ. In other words, redemption and all these things that he's been talking about, you're not going to find him anywhere else. This is why he keeps saying in him. It's in the beloved. It's in Christ, redemption, the election, all the things that he's been talking about, they're all in him. You will not find them anywhere else. And I think at this point, as I was studying this again, I said to myself, for crying out loud, I get this, Paul. Why do you keep saying in him? It's like you're you're now beating a dead horse, you know? It's like, you know how it is, right? When you say something over and over and over and somebody says to you, good night, I get it. I get it's in him. Four times in just a couple of verses, I get it, I understand. Well, we have to consider that Paul really wasn't the author of this text, was he? The Holy Spirit is the author of the text. God is the author of the text. So this isn't Paul thinking, well, I just really need to stress and emphasize this point for the Ephesians because they're not going to get it. This is God's ministry and word to us. If anyone knows us fully... It's not going to be the Apostle Paul, though when I read the scriptures, I say, wow, it's the Holy Spirit. It's God himself who knows us. So the redundancy there, the repetition over and over in him or anything that you see in scripture is God himself speaking directly to us, emphasizing something for our own benefit. Why? Because he knows us better than anyone else does. He knows something about us that I don't like to admit to, and that's that we are prone to what? Wander. That, you know, we, we, we come here on Sundays and we hear the scriptures unpacked and divided and, and preached and we all say, hallelujah, amen, brother, sister, yes, he's getting it. Yet we say these things, we nod our heads, we all agree, well, most of us do at least. We walk out of here, we're sort of energized and we're thinking, okay, this is the truth and this is what I, this is what I need to do. And then, and then come Tuesday evening Maybe Wednesday morning, we begin to sort of digress. We begin to slip back into the old patterns of forgetting, not living out, not trusting, turning to lesser things. Is that not what we do? So I don't know about you, but I need to be constantly reminded that all that I ever need or will ever need is in him. I need to hear that constantly because it's just a a few hours after church where I already find myself trying to find approval or acceptance in something other than the beloved, right? Man, I tell you what, that TV at Costco would change my life. It's ultra definition. It's seven times HD. It's two grand. I got the money. You know, it's just, we're constantly, I'm not saying it's bad to buy an ultra-definition TV. If you get one, call me, we'll come over and watch the fights. But what I'm saying is, is that we, you know, maybe that's a terrible example, but I don't think so because we tend to find identity in these things, in the things that we purchase and buy and drive, right? I drive a Sienna, I've got no identity when it comes to a car. Guys look at me and they're like, you're not even a man, you drive a minivan. Hallelujah, that's fine with me, right? You see these big trucks roll up, the wheel is like above my head. What are people actually doing here? 
people, what they're actually doing is they're turning to everything in the world to find value, security, acceptance. All of these blessings is what they're actually after. They have no idea that they're in Christ. So all that God is doing here for us is such, it, it's like you're my beloved children, I love you, and I'm going to keep stressing certain things to you because I know how prone you are to start to go off to other things. I mean, look at Israel's history, Right? We smashed the Philistines or whichever group of people it was at Jericho. And a week later, they get annihilated by the city of Keys. They take out Sacramento one weekend, and then they go into Keys, and they get their butts whooped. Why? Because they turn to lesser things. This is the pattern of humanity. We are constantly pursuing what we actually need that only Christ can give us. We're constantly pursuing these things and everything else. And so... It's a good, helpful, much-needed repetition, is it not? It's, it's in Him. God wants this to become burned into our minds. Why? Number one, because He loves us. Number two, because He wants us to be spared the heartache, the shame, the devastation that is caused by going after real satisfaction, purpose, fulfillment in all of the lesser things, and all of the little g-gods, right? He wants his children, and that's who he's talking about here. Remember, this is written to Christians. He wants his children to know that it's in Christ. Spare yourself the heartache of going after it and all these other things. That's what he's saying. That's why there's repetition here. That's why it says in him over and over and over and over. We really do have a problem on this side of glory, amen? They'll, they'll come one day when we'll be completely satisfied in Christ. We'll be made like him in the fuller sense, and so we won't be constantly going after lesser things. But on this side of glory, before we go to be with the Lord, we do have to wrestle with the flesh and demonic forces and these things that are constantly pulling us in other directions and causing us to try to focus on lesser things. All of life for the Christian is, is a war against focusing on Christ and focusing on lesser things, is it not? That that's, could be spiritual warfare defined in a sense. The whole world goes, hey, over here! And the scripture says, in him. So this is for our benefit. I like the repetition. I need the repetition. Keep repeating yourself, Holy Spirit, and he will. He also wrote, not just in him, but you also. So back in verse 12, Paul talked about those who were first to hope in Christ. You look back at 12, he says this. What was he doing there? He was referring to the apostles. He was referring to other Jews who had been converted. He's talking about like the apostles and, and a handful of Jews were the first to hope in Christ. And so what he's saying here now is you also, he's referencing the Gentile believers at Ephesus. Believe it or not, there were some Jewish converts there, but primarily there were non-Jewish converts, Gentiles. And so all he's saying here is that you also are included into the covenant family of God. You, you, you're like us. We came into it first because God revealed it to us first and changed us first. But you are also a part of this covenant family of God. And he kind of goes on to describe how they sort of entered into it, and that's kind of the rest of the text in a way. So that's what we have. We have in him you also. You're part of this thing, Gentile believers. Now, wonderful is that because Jews then and today would say Gentiles don't have any part in the things of God. They, they don't have any inheritance. They don't have the spiritual blessings. Why? Because they're not Jewish. This was the way they thought back then, and it's horrible. And Paul was saying, hey, hey, nah, nah, you also. I know you've got some Jewish believers in your church maybe, and I, I wonder if there was a little turmoil going here, and this is why he does this. But we know that you've got some Jewish brethren. They're my brothers, I get it, and they don't understand some of these things. But I want you to know that you also, you're, you've been grafted in, as he talks about in, in his epistles. So that's what he's saying. Secondly, in him you also, right? We'll just kind of keep expanding the passage. When you heard the word of truth, he says. When you heard the word of truth. Now before the foundation of the world, God chose his people and he predestined them to adoption. And he vowed to bless them in Christ with spiritual blessings, right? Redemption, inheritance, etc. These are the things that we've been talking about for nine weeks. He also established the method for how he would impart 
These blessings, all that we're talking about to them, how he would bring them into it, how he would provide, not just provide, they're there and waiting for him, but how he would give them and grant them to them. What we see in the text here is Paul beginning to describe this method. And we might even say this is how the Gentiles were brought into the covenant family of God through this and all the blessings. He tells the Ephesians, right, when you heard the word of truth, this is how he begins this explanation of how they've entered in, how you might receive these things, how they've come to you. He says, when you heard the word of truth. So God's process for bringing the elect, and this is what we've learned earlier in the passage, we would say maybe lost sinners too, bringing the elect into this glorious salvation and all of these blessings that we've been talking about, it starts, it begins with the hearing of, of the word of truth. The hearing of the word of truth is requisite, required to biblical salvation or of it or for it. It's absolutely necessary. No one is saved apart from the hearing of the word of truth. This is God's economy of things. This is how he's designed it. But we must be careful not to misunderstand what Paul meant here, okay? And listen to me carefully. Because I think we, at this point we could say, okay, what does that mean? We could run off with all sorts of ideas about what the word of truth is. The word of truth is not, in this text, what he's referring to, it's not some sort of generalized truth about God. You know, many people today, you know, they, they, they have heard generalized truths about God, right? There's a lot of generalized truths about God going on out there. People have even believed and put their faith in some of these generalized things that have been said about God. I mean, for crying out loud, 86% of the population of the United States claims to be Christian. And, I mean, I, you know, 86% of the place that I work at a couple of days a week is not Christian. 1% is, and so I don't see how this stat could be true. Well, it's because people call themselves Christian because they might believe some sort of generalized truth about God, and yet they've never even been converted. So, generalized truths are something that are very popular today. People like the idea of God this or God that or whatever. All these things sound good to them. The fact of the matter is, there is nothing salvific that has a, a saving component to it about generalized truths, right? I mean, you can hear and believe that God exists. And if 86% of the population says it's Christian, then that means 86% of the population probably believes there is a God. That's probably the better definition of what they're doing there. They're actually not, they don't, not Christian. They just believe there's a God, maybe. I mean, you can hear and believe that God is creator. Well, you know, come on. Even the most knowledgeable, brilliant scientists say there's got to be a divine designer. Right? So that's a generalized truth about God. You know, he exists, maybe. Maybe there's a creator. He's got to be out there. I was talking to a guy who was a science major. He's a brilliant guy. His IQ's through the ceiling. When I'm around him, I feel really dumb. Um, but, you know, he would say, well, come on, man, I'm not, I'm not an idiot. Nothing can't produce all things. And so, of course, they turn to the Big Bang or maybe a divine designer and these kinds of things, but he's right. You can hear and believe that God is creator. I think he does that in a way. You can hear and believe that God is love. He's love, he's love, he's love. You can hear and believe that God forgives. You can hear that and believe that. That's a generalized reason, a forgiving God, right? If he exists, he's a forgiving God. You can hear and believe that you need to live a righteous life. You see, these are all generalized truths, right? You can believe and affirm all these things, and guess what? You can still go to hell. Absolutely. In fact, I think the furnace would be turned up more so for that person who does affirm God in this way, but doesn't do the other things that are necessary or believe what he needs to truly believe. You can believe all of the generalized truths about God and heaven and all these things. You can. He's forgiving. I need to live a righteous life, and you can still go to hell. I have the best example ever known to mankind. I don't provide it for you. Scripture does. They're called the Pharisees. No one was ever as more religious as these, this group of religious people. And they believe God, and they believe, they believe there was a God. They believe there was a creator. They believe all this stuff. And you know what? The vast majority of them still went off into eternal damnation and suffering most of them that is so we must understand that generalized truths about god will not save a person if generalized truths had salvific power if they could save 
than Judaism and Islam and never, nearly every other world religion would be okay. Right? Because all of the religions of the world, most of them at least, have some kind of truth about God in some kind of sense. And so they would be okay. So we mustn't make the mistake uh, by thinking that that is what Paul had in mind here. The word of truth is not a reference to some sort of generalized truth about God. Paul was thinking about something specific here. To avoid any confusion, because that's what people like me do. We confuse what is said and we begin to think something else. We begin to preach something else. To avoid any confusion amongst the Ephesians, he added the next line. Number three, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, comma, what? The gospel of your salvation, right there. The word of truth here is a reference to the gospel of salvation or to the gospel. So God's method of bringing the elect, law sinners, to himself begins with the preaching and the hearing of the word of truth or the gospel. And Again, this is not a generalized truth about God. He is referencing, he mean, when he says it, he means the gospel. The gospel, in a nutshell, is the good news that Jesus Christ has made a way for lost sinners to be forgiven and reconciled to God, what, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection? See, that's the gospel. The word of truth is, here in the text, is the proclamation of that very gospel. And that gospel, the gospel of salvation, is what Jesus preached throughout Palestine, what Pete, Peter preached in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and other opportunities, what Philip preached in Samaria, and what Paul preached throughout the Roman Empire. There is no power to save souls in the proclamation of generalized truths about God. Men must hear specific truths about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ if they are to be saved. Can I get an amen? This is the way that God designed it in eternity past. Remember, he set all this up to work a certain way back before the foundation of the world. The gospel is the trigger. The gospel is the means. The gospel is the message that the Holy Spirit uses to quicken dead men's souls. Now, one of the startling things about churches today is the way pastors preach. They say things like, if you'd like to become this or that, you know, maybe forgiving or something like this or nicer or whatever, then, then it must be done through Jesus, right? And then they ask their listeners to come forward to receive him as Lord and Savior so they can change and become forgiving or whatever it is that they're after that morning. They do this all the time. Just pop on a podcast, flip on your TV. This is what guys preach today. They boast, and then, and then they tend to boast about this. We preached the gospel on Sunday, and look at how many people came forward to become or became Christians. You see, we talked about this particular subject, and we, and we implored the people that they could become this certain way if they received Christ as Savior, and they came forward in mass and did that. Now look at this amazing work that God has done. All of these people became Christians. We got all their info on handy little cards. We're calling them all. We're going to start telling them to get baptized, whatever. And here's what happens. They just boast about it. Look at all the stuff that God's doing. Look at all the work that God is doing here. And here's the question that I have. Sir, when did you preach the gospel? I don't remember you talking about the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I didn't hear that one time in your sermon. Therefore, you did not preach the gospel, which means it's very unlikely that anyone in your service was converted. And they would say, but the gospel is a very broad message, which includes the things that I preach about, so I am preaching in a way. No, you're not. You are preaching the gospel's implications or what it can do, but you're not preaching the gospel itself. I recently um, had a conversation with a pastor, and, and he was invited to go speak at this, you know, at a special engagement at a church, and, 
And, you know, it was a couple weeks before and I said, what an amazing opportunity for God to be glorified. And this guy, he, he gets the gospel and all that. And, and I said, so what are you going to preach on when you go there? I mean, what, you know, what, did they give you like subject matter or whatever? He goes, no, it's just kind of tied to this. And he said, but I've just kind of resolved to go preach the gospel. And I said, that, that's, that's where it's at. That's what you should go preach in a very large church. That's where you should preach in a very small church. And so he said, I'm going to preach the gospel, man. And I said, praise God, you know. And then he went and did the thing and all that. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to check it out a little bit. And I went back and listened to his sermon. He never mentioned the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not once. And yet he thinks he preached the gospel. Because today, pastors and lay people and and congregates think that the gospel is all of this stuff. We've, We've... completely lost sight of what it actually is, and it is actually the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Now, to become forgiving in all these things are the implications of the gospel. Yes, through the power of the gospel applied to the soul, you can become forgiving. You can become all of these things. But let's not mistake and say, and that's another thing too, gospel's a catchphrase today. You know, people say, well, I'm gospel-centered and all this, and yet they never talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can you be gospel-centered if you never talk about the gospel? All you ever talk about is what can happen through Christ, but you never actually talk about what Christ has done. This is a huge problem in the church. It's a growing problem. There's an infatuation with this terminology, gospel, and yet most people that are using it and putting it on their signs, they rarely talk about the actual God. They talk about what it can do, but they don't talk about what it is. And it's a scary thing. It is, what I said earlier, these are generalized truths about what the gospel can do, but you're not actually saying what the gospel is. So, in order for a person to become part of the covenant family of God, in terms like the Ephesians, what he's saying here, for anyone else, it's, it's about hearing the word of truth, more specifically about hearing the gospel. We don't get into the blessings and all that Christ has. We don't enter into Christ through gospel language. We get to it and in it and in him through what the gospel is. It's hearing what Christ has done on our behalf, something that is impossible for us to ever accomplish on our own, right? That's what makes the gospel so good news. If I could do it, it wouldn't be good news. This is imperative that we understand this. Has anyone just, and I'm not trying to, you know, make people look bad out there or anything. I'm just telling you, what I try to track with what's happening out there, and this is going on. I'm trying to not follow along, but has anyone experienced what I'm talking about? Have you seen this anywhere where it's like everything under the sun is offered to people who are listening, and yet what's never articulated is what Christ actually did? Put a hand up if you've seen and heard what I'm talking about. Yeah. Have any of you just sat there and thought, oh, now, that was a really compelling sermon because I already have the gospel, so I get it. I can live out those implications and all that. But what happens to the person who has not yet been converted? They simply move to the blessings, move right past the blessings. They don't even hear about what he's done, and they, they hear about what they can have. How many of you have just said to yourself, oh, my goodness, this is not right? You want to shout out, hey, pastor, talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, sir. Oh, hey, 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 hey. You know, I'm glad that I'm not alone here. And I know the elders and I have prayed through this and we felt this way. So again, it is about hearing the word of truth, which is the gospel of our salvation or the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what men must hear if they are to be saved and become anything in Christ. That is the way God designed it before the foundation of the world. But it's more than hearing. It's not just hearing. Is it? Number four, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, which is what? The gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, and believed in him. God's plan, right? His, the thing that he set up, the, the way into Christ and all that he has to offer and all that, it, it, it involves hearing the gospel, right? It involves hearing the word of truth. We've covered that. Here we see that it also involves believing the gospel, This is faith, what he's saying here. According to God's plan and design, faith is requisite to salvation. Faith must be present. Without faith, it is impossible, as it says in Scripture, to please God. 
No elect person. And this is amazing. It's true. No elect person. Because I believe in election. The Scripture teaches it clearly. And I also wrestle with some of the ideas of what men can do and can't do and all that. I see other stuff in Scripture. and I, There's mystery there. But I think I'm, I'm pretty convinced that God is sovereign and he elects unto salvation. But I'll tell you this. This is a fact. No elect person shall ever be saved apart from hearing and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we say to ourselves, well, where does the responsibility lie in that? Is it in man's responsibility or is it in God's? Well, I think it's in both, in a way. You've got to know that believing, (laughs) trusting, faith is requisite to salvation. No one's saved apart from faith. How were the Ephesians added to the body of Christ, which consists of both Jewish and Gentile believers, through hearing the word of truth, the gospel, and believing it. That's what he's saying. That's how they came into, that's how they were grafted in. And by golly, he's saying everything that he said prior to these two verses, he's saying that God set that all up for them and orchestrated it and then brought them into it. I really think that there was some, some sort of a rift happening here between Gentile and Jewish believers because it's like the Gentiles maybe might have been made feel like they didn't, they weren't part of the covenant family of God because maybe what some of the Jews were doing. I guess that could happen in church circles, right? You know, you, you don't do things exactly the way that some people at your church do, and so you're not really welcomed into or made to be feel like you, you, you belong. You know, well, you know, uh, I'm sorry, you, don't, you haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and don't speak in tongues, so we love you, but until that happens, which is a complete fallacy, made up, and I don't care to say, I, I don't care if that offends people. It, I can't find it anywhere in Scripture. Because if it's something that I should possess because God gave it to me, I want to exercise it and glorify Him. And I just can't find it in Scripture. I see stuff in there, but I don't see the way it's happening today, I'll tell you that. So maybe these Ephesians felt like they weren't part of the clique, if you will, or the church. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, you heard the word of truth, the gospel, and you believed, and that's how you were grafted in. That's, that was part of God's divine plan for you. He predestined for that to take place, and it happened, and that's how you came in. So don't let anyone make you feel less because you don't have or say or do or act like everyone else or don't believe perfectly certain things that they believe. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Maybe that's what was going on with these poor folks. Well, he's making it clear. He's making it clear that this is how you come in. Important questions arise, though. Where does faith come from, or how is it obtained? This is a million-dollar question. For me, it is, because my mind is investigative, and when I think, okay, so it's faith, and okay, so where does that, is that in me already? Is it something I grab? What do I do? How does that work? Well, here are four things about faith from Scripture, right from Scripture, okay? So maybe this will help you understand how God has orchestrated, set all this up, and how he brings us in, and what faith is, and how we get it in all this. First of all, you must understand that faith is of divine origin. It's not human. Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus is what? The founder of and perfecter of our faith. What does that tell us? If he's the founder of it and he's divine, then it is of divine origin. Amen? He's not the one that just takes it and perfects it because that could mean it came from somewhere else or maybe we already had it and he just takes it and does something with it. That's not what the text says. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that he is the founder of it, that its origin is in The beloved, it's in him, it's in Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is the founder. It's his deal. That's it. Hebrews 12, 2. Secondly, faith is a divine gift. Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly uh, than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So, right off the bat, we can see that it's of divine origin, and we can see that it's granted as a gift from God, and that he gives 
each of his adopted sons and daughters a measure of it. Does that mean that you can't grow it? Yes, you can. But he gives us a measure in terms of salvation. It's a saving faith that he gives, that he imparts, and that it can be grown, and we work that out in the fear and trembling. So it's divine origin, it's divine gift. See, faith comes through the divine word. Faith comes through the divine word, right? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. What's the word of Christ? It's the gospel. That's how faith comes. Again, go back to the example I just gave you of men saying they're preaching the gospel, but they're not. They're preaching what the gospel can do, but they're never talking about the gospel itself, which is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can faith come if you're not talking about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Guess what? According to Scripture, it doesn't come. So no one's converted unless we talk about that. And I'm not going to toot my horn. I'll probably toot the elders' horns. That was weird. We have all agreed that we must really be about the gospel here because we understand it's the only message where people are converted. And really, in a way, it is the message that sanctifies those who are already saved. Colby, you would agree. That's why we, at the very beginning, before we even had one gathering, we said we're going to make the gospel front and center. We were already wrestling with gospel language there, and we said to ourselves, let's, a, let's define the gospel according to Scripture, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the message we're going to preach week in and week out. We're going to try to nail that every week because that's where the power is. That's the saving message, and it's a sanctifying message. So it is of divine origin. It's a divine gift. It comes through faith comes through the divine word right so what do we can we boil down so far it's divine d i love dan's laser focus he's got me locked in i feel like i'm at the end of a rifle scope don't shoot me he's got me d faith is implanted through the divine power and work of the holy spirit Faith is implanted, it's granted, it's given, it's applied through the divine, divine again, right? Divine emphasis, power and work of the Holy Spirit. John 6, 63, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit, capital S, and life. What is Christ talking about here? I gave you the gospel And in it, the Spirit gives life. He gives faith. Hypothesis. It's divine. You're not born with it. You don't hear certain things and begin to cultivate it on your own. None of that. I I love how what it says here. The flesh counts for nothing. That means faith ain't of you. It is a divine gift. Now, what's the idea here? It's to emphasize the divine nature of faith, which should generate within those who are saved an amazing sense of love and gratitude to God because now we realize, well, it's not of me. I don't have it. I couldn't come up with it. It's a gift from him. It's this. It's, it's what he's done for me. I mean, to me, that just, man, that just compels me to worship. Faith is also part of God's eternal decree, right? Election, predestination to adoption, all these things are part of his thing. The the gospel being the message that saves, and even the faith itself is part of God's eternal decree. It's all part of his plan. God planned to give us faith so that we could enter into Christ and receive our spiritual blessings. The Holy Spirit's role in this salvation is is to quicken our dead spirits, to regenerate us, and then to implant this wonderful gift of faith. If God had not planned to send the Spirit to quicken us and to give us faith, then we would never be able to comprehend Christ or these spiritual blessings, right? Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, is what Scripture says. Without the work of the Holy Spirit... We will not comprehend spiritual things. We will remain as we are, dumb, deaf, blind, groping, doing what we think is right. And without faith, we will not comprehend spiritual things. Faith 
is the way that we're able to see them and comprehend them. So it makes perfect sense for God to have planned to quicken his adopted children through the Spirit and to give them faith so that he could, or so that they could, so that we could realize and understand who he is and what he has done for us, right? If he planned to save us and he planned to elect us and he did all this stuff, is what it says in Ephesians 1, basically 1 through 14, if all of that is true, then it totally makes sense that he would give us the very essential thing that it takes to receive and to step into all of it, which is faith. You don't do all of these things for your children. You don't you do not buy a gas can filled with gas for your kid and not get him a car to put it in. It makes no sense. Sounds like a cool, fun joke, but... Or you don't buy him a car and say, now go off and drive it and don't put gas in it for him. You can't enjoy all that God... You can't receive and enjoy and be blessed by and live in all that God has done for you as a child of God, unless you have the thing, the, the, the con, not the conduit, but the connection to all of it, which is faith. God is spirit. We don't see him. I can't see my inheritance. And yet through faith, I can see it. I can believe it. And so it makes total sense that God would not only set up all of this wonderful stuff, but the means by which we receive it, enter into it, understand it, enjoy it, hope for it. And it's faith. It's really amazing. Repentance is also a gift given through the Spirit to Timothy chapter 2, 25 to 26. I like to think of it like this. Faith reveals who God is holy, righteous, etc. Repentance reveals who we are, unholy, unrighteous, etc. The two things work together. The Holy Spirit comes to the adopted son and daughter. Before they even know it, all of a sudden something happens, they change. They begin to believe in God. They begin to turn away from the things of this world and all that. And yes, they spend the rest of their life wrestling between turning to and turning from. I get it. But they're living in active repentance. Both of these things are granted and given by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit applies both faith and repentance to the adopted child of God through the preaching and hearing of the gospel. That's what he does. That's how he works it out. A.W. Pink wrote something really good. He said, the salvation of God's elect was purposed, planned, and provided by God the Father before the foundation of the world. It was procured and secured by the incarnation, obedience, death, and resurrection of God the Son. It is made known, applied to, and wrought in them by God the Spirit. Thus, salvation is of the Lord, right? Jonah 2.9. That's why, that's why the scripture says that. He did it all. And man has no part or hand in it at any point whatsoever. The child of God is not the earner, but the recipient of it. Faith is not a condition which the elect sinner must perform in order to obtain salvation, but it is the means and the channel by which or through which he personally enjoys the salvation of the triune Jehovah. That's a fantastic explanation of this text. Faith lets us see, experience, enjoy. Repentance lets us continue to do that by turning away. Both are granted and given by the Holy Spirit. It's part of his ministry to us, completely necessary to salvation. Don't let anyone tell you that you can be saved by faith alone without repentance too. Because there's a whole lot of people out there saying they believe in Jesus and nothing has changed. Repentance, turning away from my self-righteousness and, 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 uh, and my self-effort and, and all the smaller G gods and all the lesser things, it's absolutely requisite to salvation and it's not something that we actually conjure up on our own. It is present in the life of the true believer because the Holy Spirit has given both of those things, faith and that. And so when you meet someone who says, I love Jesus Christ with all my heart, soul, and mind and strength, blah, 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 blah. He's my Lord and Savior, and they're battling sin, and, they, and, and that's fruit and evidence of it. But if they say, I love Jesus, blah, 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 and live their life a certain way, and then, you know, it's like, okay, so there's one of those things that's missing, and God has ordained it to be a way where both will be there. So why is that one missing? I need to proclaim the gospel to this person, and I need to talk about what Jesus himself talked about, repent Believe the gospel. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These are the words of Jesus. And not my words. Five. 
In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, the in him is Jesus, right? Jesus. And it says, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's the next section. Paul mentions another work of the Holy Spirit in salvation, right? Yeah, he, he quickens, he gives faith, he gives repentance, but it's also part of his work in our salvation is his seal, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Those who are quickened by the Spirit and have faith in Christ become sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This sealing with the Holy Spirit is also the seventh and final spiritual blessing of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Before the foundation of the world, God planned to bless his adopted children by sealing them with the Holy Spirit. To be sealed with the Holy Spirit means to be indwelt or possessed by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. The Holy Spirit, you know, didn't work a little magic or sprinkle a little pixie dust on us to seal us. Our sealing is not some sort of mystical act. It is His supernatural presence in us. It's not like He went, poof, you're sealed, I'm out, I got things to deal with. He comes into the life of a person and that's what causes the sealing. His presence is what keeps us sealed. The Holy Spirit himself is the seal. It's not what he did to us. It's what he does in us. I like how Paul added the verb promised. Promised Holy Spirit, right? Promised. Charles Hodge said, the promise was given frequently. This promise, this idea of the Holy Spirit being promised. This promise was given frequently throughout the ancient prophets who predicted that when Messiah came and in virtue of his mediation, God would pour his spirit on all flesh. That's all types of flesh, different people. Christ, when on earth, when on earth frequently repeated this promise, assuring his disciples that when he had gone to the Father, he would send the Comforter, even the Spirit of truth, to abide with them forever. So this promise of being sealed with the Holy Spirit on Every type of person from every ethnic background. You read again, Revelation 7, 9, diverse church. All sorts of different folks. It was prophesied and promised that these people, that people would be sealed by the Spirit. And Jesus picked up on that during his ministry when he was preaching. He would say these things. Well, you're not going to see me, and, but I'm going to send a comforter. These sorts of things he said. He carried out sort of... He extended this Old Testament promise. He applied it to himself, if you will. Now, here are three things that the presence or the sealing of the Holy Spirit, him in us, does for us. Ready? First, his presence proves that we belong to God. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is the number one way that you know that you are a true believer and that you know someone else is. If you can tell that the Holy Spirit is in you or is in that other person. And what would the signs of that be? Well, they would be that they proclaim Jesus as Lord, as Christ, that they bear the fruits of the Spirit. His presence in us proves that we belong to God. The Spirit testifies to our true identity, and that's son or daughter of Christ, or of God through Christ. Amazing. Secondly, his presence preserves us, right? Three Ps. I love the Ps. Phil, right? I get it. His presence preserves us for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30. Can't wait to get to this in six years. Do not grieve, right? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, right? Don't, don't, don't sin against him and grieve him by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. His presence seals us for the day of redemption. And I think the day of redemption is either the day of judgment, the final judgment, or maybe it's the day when Christ returns to establish his millennial kingdom. It's one of those things. But it's like the Spirit comes into us to preserve us for that day and for that event. He comes into us and carries us along and preserves us until that moment. So he proves that we belong to God. He preserves us with his presence for the day of redemption. 
Third, his presence is the pledge of our future inheritance. His presence is the pledge of our future inheritance, right? We're going to zip over to 2 Corinthians 1, 22 to 23. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You see, this last point, his presence is the pledge of our future inheritance, that is exactly what Paul begins to describe in the next line. Now, back in verse 11, before we get to that, back in verse 11, Paul told the Ephesians that they had an inheritance coming to them. It was stored up for them. It was set apart for them. Well, he didn't say all that. He said it in other places, but he pretty much said, you have an inheritance. It's in Christ. That's what he said. I said all those other things because I went to other scriptures. But he told them, you have an inheritance coming to them. He said that in a way. You have an inheritance, right? This was great news, especially for these Gentile believers who probably were made to feel like they didn't belong to the church. And all of a sudden they find out, wait, through faith and all these things we've received and these things have been applied to us, appointed to us. We are just like you Jewish believers and all that. But what wonderful news it must have been to find out that they have an inheritance. I don't know about you, but that's great news. It's great news to know that Christ did these things for me and secured these things for me, but there's something better coming in the future because, you know, life is rough and tough and I live paycheck to paycheck, just like most of you. If you don't, give me the name of your financial advisor. I'd like to get some input. It's like I'm tired of this. It's the way it is, right? I mean, who in here can relate to the struggle of daily life and, 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 and not having a whole lot of money and, and life being a grind and, and not having a lot of stuff and all this. And I get it. That's not the goal of life at all. It's to obtain those things and to give them away for the sake of Christ. But I get it, right? We could be made to feel like, well, I don't have, there isn't much in this life. I'm so thankful I have Christ. I, I think that's how the majority of us feel. But how wonderful is it to know that, yeah, not only do we have Christ, which is spectacular, but he's provided absolute gold mines for us in our inheritance. I mean, just the, the wealth of heaven, the wealth of the new heaven and earth. It's all ours. There's no financial struggle in the millennial or eternal kingdom. There's no grind, only glory. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good. I'm down with that. I'm ready. Let's go. Just come now. Well, yeah, come. Yeah, come now, right? Are you ready for this? So how elated they must have felt, like, wow, we got all this coming to them, right? Paul tells them this, but guess what? It wasn't enough. He also wanted to prove it to them. And that is exactly what he set out to do in the next line, number six. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, what? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. You know what the Holy Spirit is? You know what part of his ministry is to us? He volunteered in eternity past during those wonderful eternal councils. I don't know how that went down. I want to be reverent about it, but he volunteered himself to take up residency in ourselves as the pledge of what we would receive. Some translations use the phrase deposit, and that's kind of cool. The Holy Spirit is the deposit who guarantees our inheritance. Or if you're into financing things, the down payment. I don't think it's wise to make payments, so. He's the deposit. When the Holy Spirit is given to a person by God, when he is sent by God the Father to a person. God, and he takes up residency in this person, God is making a pledge to that person to deliver on all his promises, which include our inheritance. Our inheritance is stored up for us in heaven, which means that we do not yet have access to it. We cannot see it or touch it. We cannot really enjoy it yet, right? But the Holy Spirit is like a certificate of ownership. His presence certifies that we are the rightful owners of a royal, glorious inheritance. How wonderful is this? The Holy Spirit is like the deed to a property that we are destined to own. And I want to be reverent. He is God. He is so much more than that. I'm just trying to give you examples so you can understand Part of the Holy Spirit's ministry to us is to carry us along through life until we receive this inheritance. And He not only leads us to it, but He will make sure that we acquire full possession of it. 
He is the Loomis truck. That is what Paul is saying here. I love the fact that God backs his promise of inheritance, all these blessings. He backs it. I'm telling you, sons and daughters, I've got it for you. I've given it to you. And then he not only just says it, but he backs it with the presence and pledge of the Holy Spirit in us. How wonderful is this church? This is what your Bible is teaching us right now. It's just spectacular. I think the sad thing is is that we fail to realize how magnificent this is because we allow our circumstances to drown out the majesty and glory of our own glory in the future. This is why we're constantly encouraged. Can anyone relate to what I'm saying? Yeah. Let's put it this way. We've had two families and two couples leave this church in the last month. And we're a small church as it is. So I know what it feels like to be in difficult circumstances. And I, I understand how easy it is to be distracted by God and praise God for Cheryl who says God's moving and he's doing something. She reminds me as we were talking the other day that, you know, it... it I know you're heartbroken, but it's, it's God who's doing these things. So, and, and, and you know what? Quite frankly, just remember the bigger picture here of what God's doing. So I understand what it's like to be distracted by circumstances. The minute something trying or difficult happens in my life, I immediately forget about how amazing this is. And this is the ministry of the church to one another, right? We, we remind each other, <laughs> don't lose sight of the prize. So, you know, I can empathize with you. But may you know that none of your circumstances, no matter how good, bad, or ugly they are or become, no matter how difficult, no matter how challenging, none of them affect what we're talking about. They only affect our perception of them. They don't affect us. They don't affect the reality of I love the fact that God backs his promises with action, and that action is the sending and indwelling possession of the Holy Spirit. I've promised you things. And there's a couple of passages that talk about all things. That's interesting. Not only have I promised, I've given you the deposit of them. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is your teacher, your comforter, all of that, but he's also the guarantee that I will bring it to pass, to fruition, that I will give to you all that I've said I will give to you. In heaven, Phil, you won't worry about who's at your church and who isn't. Seven, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Hallelujah. Comma, to the praise of his glory. Paul wrapped up this beautiful benediction because that's exactly, it's a doxology, it's a statement of worship, chapter 1, 3 to 14. It's a, it's a benediction. He wraps this whole beautiful benediction up, this doxology up. This is what you have, all glory to God. He wraps it up with his trademark phrase, to the praise of his glory. Perfect ending to it. Interestingly, he began this benediction with it, did he not? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3. He started the benediction with the glory of God and he closes it with the glory of God. Man, Paul had the glory of God in mind at the beginning before he unpacked the spiritual blessings to the Ephesians and at the end when he wrapped it up. He opened with the glory of God and he closed with the glory of God. The glory of God is the bookends. Why? 
Because the final cause, I said this last week when I quoted Calvin, the final cause of our salvation is the praise of his glory. God saved you because he chose you and he loves you and he's merciful. He wanted to adopt you as a child. He did that all according to his purposes and all that. Before eternity passed, he made that decision. He activated it through faith and the coming of the Spirit, all this. And, and, and we must be sure to understand that he did it for a purpose, to the praise of his glory. God created all things to glorify him, and darn near all things have fallen into a state of not glorifying him. He created all things. He's entitled to all of the glory. When you're the creator, you're entitled to it. And it doesn't pay dividends right now in a way because we've fallen. And so when he redeems us and restores us to that pre-Adamic state, even better than that because we have the Holy Spirit. Adam didn't have that. When he restores us to that, he wants us to return to what we were originally created for. For what? To bear his image and to glorify him. So the chief end of our salvation isn't our own joy and eternal position and all this. Those are great things. They're part of it. Praise God, they are. It's his glory. Amen? That's what Paul is saying. We should not wait till glory to praise his glory. God desires praise to his glory now. He is entitled to it. Think about what he has done for you. We should praise him for his goodness and grace. Praise him for his magnanimity. That means generosity and mercy. And praise him for his blessings and benefits. Our life should be a song of praise, all that we do. I know it's hard. I'm going to end with a story that I think really helps to sort of capture the whole of this text in a way, the whole passage, because we're closing this section. Probably better get a drink first. A little dry. Baron Fitzgerald was a wealthy Englishman who had only one child. He had an only child. A son whom he dearly loved. The only child became the apple of his eye, the center of his affections, and the focus of this little family's attention. Mom and dad just doted over this kid, loved him immensely. The son grew up, but in his early teens, his mother became very, very ill and died, leaving him and his father. Fitzgerald grieved over the loss of his wife immensely, and he devoted himself to fathering their son, to doing the best that he could to father this child. The child reminded him of his wife. In the passing of time, the son also became very, very ill and died in his late teens. Fitzgerald, he mourned the loss of his son day and night for many years. With no remaining family left, he committed himself to amassing wealth and an extraordinary collection of art. That's what he poured himself into. He lost his wife, he lost his child, and I guess this is what I'll do now, and that's what he did. Years later, Fitzgerald himself became ill and died. Prior to his death, he had carefully prepared his will with explicit instructions as to how his estate would be settled. He had directed that there would be an auction in which his entire art collection would be sold. Because of the quantity and quality of the artworks in his collection, which was valued into the millions and tens of millions of English pounds, a huge crowd of prospective buyers gathered expectantly at the auction. Among them were many museum curators and private collectors. They were just chomping at the bit, ready and eager to start bidding. The artworks were displayed for viewing before the auction began. Among them was one painting which received little attention. It was of poor quality and done by an unknown local artist. It was a portrait of Fitzgerald's only son. 
When the time came for the auction to begin, the auctioneer gaveled the crowd to attention and, be, and the bidding began. The uh, attorney, right before the, beginning, uh, the bidding began, he gaveled the thing and called everyone to attention. The attorney was to step forward, right, to read from the will of Fitzgerald. And he did that. He stepped forward. He gaveled, got their attention. He stepped forward. And he read from the will. It said, the first painting to be auctioned is entitled, My Beloved Son. The poor quality painting didn't receive any bidders except one. The only bidder was the old servant who had known the son and loved him and served him and for sentimental reasons offered the only bid. For less than an English pound, he bought the painting. The auctioneer slammed his gavel and stopped the bidding. He asked the attorney to step forward to read from the will again. The crowd was hushed. It was quite unusual, spectacular. Nothing like this had ever been seen. And the attorney read from Fitzgerald's will again. Whoever buys the painting of my beloved son gets the whole collection. The auction is over. You see... Those who are in Christ are like the old servant. We love God's beloved Son, and we have been given God's entire collection, every blessing, a royal inheritance, which includes eternal life, the earth, the kingdom of God, position, rank higher than the angels. We are like that old servant. We have the Son and we have all that God has for us. It's amazing. How should we respond to the praise of His glory?